Thank you for all your hard work, Linda and Thelma. Let's pray for VBS and the, uh, and the outcome. Children, you're dismissed to your classes at this time as well. But Lord God, we just want to give you thanks and praise for answering the prayers of your people as we prayed for this, that whole list of, of things and concerns that Linda shared and also for the Kenya Project. We pray that you would continue to bless the work of that woman and that school um, and in the lives of those children, that they would know the gospel and that you would bless their lives. We pray for your continuing work um, during the year because the gospel was shared so clearly. Your word went out uh, in the hearts of the children, in the hearts of the mothers who came to the class for Bible study, and just in the hearts of the families that heard the stories and read the material and were here to enjoy a meal with us every day. We thank you for all of your work and how you work through us as your people. In 2 Timothy it says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we pray that these scriptures, that they may, as they make it into the lives of these young ones, that it would bear fruit for salvation in their lives. And we pray this morning for us as well, that as we look into your scripture, that you would cause it to bear even more fruit in our lives as we seek to become more faithful followers of you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name and for your sake we pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 12. Uh, beginning in verse 35, so it's printed for you in your worship folder, or you can turn in your Bibles. But in our passage this morning, in, in verse 40, Jesus says, You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So Jesus is talking about himself. And yes, Jesus came 2,000 years ago to die on the cross for our sins, but he's coming back. And he's coming back to bring in the fullness of his kingdom blessing for his people, and to finally establish this righteousness that we all long for in this world so that he will be vindicated as the Son of God. Now, when we think about the return of Jesus, and we sang a lot of wonderful songs about it this morning as well, we have to ask ourselves some questions, questions we probably already know, and that is, how does the return of Jesus Christ, the fact that this is a coming reality, impact our life and ministry? Does it have an impact? And how might it affect uh, even our understanding of our daily routines? How might it affect the manner in which we go about our kingdom work? Uh, the way we teach, the way we lead, uh, the way we pray, uh, the way we love, uh, the way we battle sin in our life. Well, these are the questions that will be addressed in our passage this morning from Luke chapter 12. They're questions that we should ask frequently as a means of keeping ourselves faithful and active and waiting for Jesus. And it's an encouragement here to consider questions like this and passages that we're looking at this morning. It's a way that God encourages faithfulness in our lives. Now we'll be reading this passage as we go, Luke 12, 35 to 48, and we're going to learn from our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, how to wait for Him. And what we're going to learn this morning is that blessings are ours, as we await for him, for all servants who are ready and watching for Jesus' return. In verses 35 to 40, 
there's great promise for faithful servants. But then in verses 41 to 48, we also learn that not only is there this great promise for servants that are faithful, there's also a greater risk for those that would be considered stewards. And we'll talk about that as we get to it. But I also want you to notice, again, there is a tie-in to where we are in the middle of Jesus talking about various topics. And we're still talking about the kingdom of God. And if you will just briefly glance back in verses 31 to 34, that paragraph, right before we get to this conversation where Jesus starts off, stay dressed for action. He's talking about the kingdom of God and how to live faithfully in light of the kingdom being here, but yet the fullness of it still coming. And Jesus uses three parables in our passage today that we're looking at to present teachings about being ready for his return. Now they have parallels in another gospel account, in Matthew's gospel account at the end of his, it's called the Olivet Discourse, but they're very different, they're different enough as you look at them that these are different occasions in which he's speaking. Well, this morning we're going to consider what are these blessings that await us as we faithfully wait for Jesus. So to begin, Jesus teaches us that there's great promise for faithful servants. And he tells this parable of servants waiting for his master's return, starting in verse 35. Stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Now as we begin, it's really important to understand this is the main parable. Now there are two other parables that are coming up, but this is the the overarching parable of our passage this morning. And for us to consider the return of Jesus Christ, it's an illustration for us to to ponder about a, a servant waiting for his master to come back from this wedding feast. And Jesus prepared his disciples, you'll notice, right as he told the story, and even us, that it's quite possible it could take a long time. It might not even be to the second watch, maybe even the third watch. We're still waiting. But we're to be ready and dressed for action. That means doing the master's work, ready for more. Some of you probably noticed that the language here mirrors the language of the Exodus. Gird up your loins, literally. Right? And, the, and the instructions in, in Exodus 12 and the Passover and the coming escape from Egypt in the Exodus, and those are very purposeful words here Jesus uses to remind us that there's a greater Exodus still that is yet to come, and that's when he returns. We're to be ready. We're also to be watching, that is to have our lamps burning, looking and listening for the Master's return uh, so that we're able to see and open that door, as he says in the passage in the storyline. So notice that both things we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be working, active, as we are waiting and watching. And many people have made mistakes by only emphasizing one of those two things. Well, in the storyline... The master is at a wedding party, and wedding parties uh, in this day and age could last days, uh, weeks, you never knew. And the duty of his servants back at the house was to be ready, that when he comes back, might even be in the middle of the night, who knows, be ready to open that door for him. He could arrive at the second or the third watch of night, meaning 9 p.m. to 6 in the morning. And so only being constantly watchful is going to work to meet the required duty. 
Now, it's really important to notice that there's this immense blessing of promise to these servants. And it really, hopefully, stood out to you as we read the, read the passage here. The, ma- the master himself would serve a festive banquet for those servants. That's unbelievable. I mean, it's, not tr- it's, 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 it's too good to be true. It doesn't fit the storyline. Did you notice that? It doesn't really fit. So the master comes home, and then he is going to make a dinner for his servants and actually serve them? Did you catch that? It's a reversal of roles that just shows how pleased Jesus will be at his church that is alert and watchful and waiting for him. What a kind master. What a generous master. He's unequaled. It's unknown. This, this blessing, Jesus is purposefully drawing our minds back to the prophets in Isaiah 25, the messianic banquet that's promised. Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6, it says, And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched out over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation." And this is a constant theme throughout the Old and New Testaments, this banquet that we're looking forward at the final day in heaven. And this is what Jesus is referring to as he's teaching in our passage this morning. In fact, this oddly reversed service, Jesus already modeled it for us, right? Later on in the Gospels, the Lord Jesus himself at the Last Supper did this in John chapter 13. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about, and then he poured water in the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Jesus already modeled the service that he's talking about here. He would at this time. And it's a commentary, as we know in John 13, really about his cross and the ultimate service that he would give. In Mark 10, 45, it says, For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so he's using this same image for heaven, that Jesus Christ really loves his church. He's going to serve you dinner, you see, as a reward for your service. It's a really amazing blessing that deserves a lot of meditation by us as our church, as a church, for grace upon grace is poured upon us because of Jesus' love for us. Later on, the apostles in the New Testament, Peter and John, would encourage us with these same themes of being ready and its blessing. In 1 Peter 1.13, Gird your minds for action. Same kind of language. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John in Revelation 3.20 writes, Behold, 
as, as he's recording Jesus' words, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. And this fits the parable perfectly. It's an offer of fellowship in the present, and it's an offer for fellowship in the future. Jesus is about to return, and he was about to knock. And as his church receives him, they will be blessed immensely in the kingdom of God. And blessing comes from readiness, not just in the future, but it comes even in the present, as hopefully you've already experienced. That is, if you're active in ministry and serving our Lord Jesus Christ, and you're eagerly looking forward to all that's to come and all that's to be yours, your life in this world is greatly blessed. So the second parable adds a warning to the promise in verse 39 and 40. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the story of the thief adds this warning to the blessing and the promise that we got in the main parable of the wedding banquet return. <clears throat> and so the thief is, of course, is an image of surprise and is pictured here as digging through the wall to an unprepared homeowner who didn't, you know, install his security measures. And so the thief breaks in and steals. You don't know when thieves come. You know, they don't usually let you know. So the lesson is, the lesson is of course, is to be ready because you don't know. And if you're not ready, what's going to happen? You're going to lose something. You're going to lose something. You'll lose out if you're not ready. Now, our Lord and Master Jesus is no thief, of course, but his coming again is going to be similarly unexpected and sudden. And so readiness is required because no one knows when he's coming back. And anyone who tells you they know, you know they're wrong, right? Because Jesus said you won't know. So readiness is the only security that you're going to have for Jesus' return if you're going to be protected against some kind of loss. So are you ready? And what's involved in remaining in a state of readiness? Now, there's a lot included, actually, that we could talk about from all of Scripture, all throughout the New Testament, but here are a few things just to put before you. Most basically, it just means standing firm in the faith. We could talk about maintaining your hope, maintaining your love, but basically, it's just living your Christian life the way the Scriptures teach you to live your Christian life. There's no secret. There's no special key there's no special knowledge that you have to get from somebody that's going to make you ready. None of that stuff. It's about living the faithful gospel life, praying fervently, constantly battling against sin. You know what all is involved. Now, of course, first of all, you have to be rightly related to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. You have to be a true Christian, not just a Christian in name or someone who hangs around Christians and hopes that the faith might rub off on them. We have to really be one of Jesus, belong to him, believe in him and what he accomplished on the cross when he offered up his life for our sin in our place. And to put our trust in that and not in ourselves or any kind of good works we think we might have that could somehow make us right with God. But it's Jesus' righteousness that we trust in. So you have to really have given your life to him to begin with. In other words, he has to be your master. You can't be your master anymore. That's the change. 
And so once you know that Jesus Christ is the master of your life, we call him Lord, that's what that means, Lord Jesus Christ, well then, that's the first, of course, most important thing to be prepared for the final day when he returns, because he's coming to bless his people. But second of all, and more important to the point here really is, is that we have to be active in serving God. And this is already in the parables, but they'll come out even more in a moment. That's more to the point being faithful to all of the Christian mission and life as it's described in the Bible and the New Testament. It's about being active. And so in the first case, if you're not a true believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not a true Christian and Jesus comes back, what do you think your loss will be? It'll be a total loss, a complete loss, because your destiny will not be at that dinner party. It'll be in hell, in eternal torment. But the loss in the second case is going to be varied because it's directly going to be related to the rewards that we as Christians are given in the kingdom and in the new heavens and the new earth. And we'll talk more about that soon. But if this doesn't impact you very much as a Christian about the level of rewards and and being blessed in the kingdom, you might want to go back and pay more attention to the first situation. Because this is to be a very strong motivation in our lives, that we want to serve the Lord Jesus, bless him, and then be blessed by him in the kingdom. Well, the main focus in this little section, verses 35 to 40, is on the greatness of that blessing in verse 37. Let me read it again. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. It's going to be a wonderful heavenly banquet with the revelation and presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, the absence of death, the absence of sorrow, where there's grace and eternal fellowship with our Lord. Blessings await immense ones for those who are ready and watching for their master's return. But Jesus teaches that, that there is a great blessing for servants that are faithful, that are active, that are busy about his work, But he also teaches there's a greater risk, though, for his stewards. And so the next parable is a parable of the faithful stewards in verses 41 to 44. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us uh, or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Now he's going to talk about three other unfaithful types when we get down to verse 45. But here in verses 41 to 44, there's the parable of the faithful stewards. So Jesus has been addressing discipleship in general, a group of disciples. And so Peter, who's the leader of the twelve, and probably 72 as well, he asked for specifics on the meaning of this parable and its application. In other words, his question is, do these words of Jesus apply to just them, his 12, or to all the followers, or maybe even to everybody who thinks that they're a part of the kingdom? So in typical style, Jesus doesn't answer the question directly, right? It's usually what he does. And so by now, but now he's going to tell another parable that's going to actually directly address Peter's concern, though, and its application for leaders in the church. 
So Jesus' opening question identifies certain servants as stewards over other servants, given particular responsibilities, which in the storyline is providing food. Now, we can't help but make the connection to the spiritual responsibility of teaching as well as leading. Now, it's really important for you to know that this whole section, verses 41 to 44, down to 48, throughout church history has been applied directly to the apostles. And so you see them in verses, they're the faithful ones at the beginning in verses 41 to 44. All the false apostles, well, those people still run around, people claiming to be apostles. And uh, those are the 45 and following, and we'll read about them. Now, also throughout church history, it's been applied to pastors and various types of leaders in the church, but we'll also see that, though this is true, that there's also some very specific application to anyone who's given responsibilities in the kingdom of God that God gives to them to fulfill. So the faithful steward, you notice he's described here as sensible, wise, prudent in performing his duties and providing food. And when the master returns, this faithful steward, who's also a fellow servant, is going to be promoted. And so he's going to receive a full and permanent authority over the whole household. This is referring to a greater and more glorious responsibilities in the kingdom when Jesus returns. It's referring to very specific places in the case of the apostles who are the foundation of the church. And it's referring to various other places of honor in the kingdom that will be given to faithful stewards. There are degrees of reward and blessing in the kingdom. Jesus taught this. He teaches parts of it here. The apostles taught this. This is standard orthodox theology. Well, then the parable continues, and we learn about three more servants. They're not faithful. They're unbelieving, the first kind, the second is unwilling, and the third is is ignorant in verses 45 to 48. But If that servant says to himself, my master's delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect him at an hour he doesn't know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant, and and that's the first one, and then 47, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to the will will receive a severe beating. And then verse 48, the third one, but the one who did not know and did what and did what deserved a beating, will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So in complete contrast to the faithful, believing steward who trusted in his master, we have this unbelieving steward. It's really hard to imagine this, though, isn't it? Uh, To imagine that you would have a leader in a church uh, that could fit in this category. An unbelieving leader, an unbelieving pastor, an unbelieving elder, whatever titles you have in your denomination, right? And most of us probably have not, never experienced that because our experience tends to be in the, in the world where they are believers, churches only. But it happens, and probably more often than we would like to consider. So this first one is a faithless steward, and he considers that the return of the master, that is Jesus, is coming again, is a long way off and irrelevant and probably even entertains the idea that, you know, it's probably not even really going to happen. 
And anyway, this steward in our story takes advantage of his position of authority that he's been given and abuses his charge. He's unnecessarily harsh, beats people and as unjust, gives into many self-indulgences as we read. He's thoroughly irresponsible and derelict in his duty as a master. He's not concerned with what's the main job, to feed people spiritual truth. That's the main job. And that's the least of this servant's, this steward's concern. In fact, he teaches his own desires, probably many heresies. Well, the return of the master Jesus is unknown to begin with, but for such an irresponsible person like this, it's going to be even more surprising and unexpected. The master Jesus Christ is going to completely and utterly reject this servant who has not served. And the picture is very graphic in the scripture here. Jesus says that he's going to cut him in two and send him into the torments of hell. The punishment must fit the crime. It always does. And we're to see that this is the true condition of this servant, this steward. He's not a believer. Doesn't believe in Jesus Christ from the very beginning. He's a hypocrite or she's a hypocrite. And has just simply advanced in the ranks of the church or their particular church. But in reality, he's a false teacher and lives a false Christian life. You know, in our time, we've seen a number of those things come to light, uh, even in the last decade or so. But, you know, we don't live in a unique age. I hope you don't think that that's something new. That's something that's been a part of humanity and a part of the church since the very beginning. And Jesus warned us and even says, don't be surprised when these things happen. But yes, somehow we're always surprised. I haven't figured that one out yet. But don't be surprised because that's what's going to happen. And it's happened all throughout church history. And the rest of the New Testament has severe warnings about these types of people. And severe warnings to those of us that might be taken in by them. So perhaps the New Testament book with the most to say about this would be Peter's second epistle. So you can read the whole thing on your own. It's really short. It'll take you about one minute. But 2 Peter, starting in chapter 2, I'll read about these people. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, it's coming very soon. Do you notice the behaviors here? They're pretty, pretty obvious. There's this Secret introduction of heresies, right? So people don't usually come along and say, hey, I have a heresy to introduce to you, okay? And then they start teaching it in the church. That's not how it works, okay? People secretly introduce them, slowly introduce them, so you can hardly tell. But notice how these are described here, even denying the master who bought them. In other words, another simple way to say it would be they don't preach the gospel, they're not centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. They start adding things to the gospel so that now Jesus' death is no longer central anymore and his resurrection isn't really that important. 
and things other than the gospel become the fascination of the leader and of the people. Well, that's one thing that they do. Second thing they do is they live their lives in sensuality. Well, that's attractive. Because now you don't have to keep certain ethics as a supposed Christian anymore because now the boundaries have been moved by this person. And so they start living a life of sensuality and drawing people into their life of sensuality. Oh, believe me, this happens. And it happens quite often. And then the way of the truth gets maligned. For the people who care to know what the truth is, then people who live like this and leaders supposedly who follow Jesus live like this? No. So then we got their false teaching, we got their sensual living, their false living, and then we got their greed. And of course the list continues. You can keep reading 2 Peter, he's got a lot of stuff in there. But greed and exploiting people for power, for wealth, for um, the ability to command other people, these types of things. And so this is how you know who these people are. And not everyone embodies all of them, all of these traits, and nor do they decide to do them all at the same time, because then you might know that that's who they are. So they're only going to do a few of them at once. So you got to be on your alert. Now, this is nothing unique to Peter. Jesus already said this in his Sermon on the Mount. Near the very beginning of his ministry, the wonderful long sermon in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and toward the very end of the sermon, starting in verse 15, um, he says this. Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. So in other words, Jesus says it's going to be obvious. Not going to be that hard. It's going to be pretty obvious. You'll know them by the fruits because, you see, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, on that day will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, or in your name perform many miracles? And then I'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. You see, even at the end, there's a degree of self-deception that they might actually be in the kingdom because it appears that they can command power and that God is on their side. And it can be deceptive to other people because they can look at them and think, well, these are amazingly powerful people. They must know God. And so people follow them. But Jesus said, you should be a fruit inspector because good trees can't produce bad fruit. It just doesn't happen. And bad trees can't produce good fruit. It just doesn't happen. But there's this charade going on, right? They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're going to present themselves differently. So Jesus tells us this. Peter tells us this. Jesus tells us again in Luke 12 that we're looking at today. Now, the illustration continues then in verses 47 to 48. We also have an unwilling steward who apparently knows a lot but doesn't do anything about it. And then we have someone who doesn't know much at all He knows little, and he doesn't even do anything with that, and he ignores his teaching duty. So the steward slash servant 
who knew the will of the master but refused to be ready and watching, refused to be active, will get many lashes, lashes in comparison with the execution of the unbelieving steward. So it's really important we follow the storyline here too, okay? Because it'll be very important in a moment. So this steward gets many lashes, whereas the one right before him, he gets executed. Okay? Then the third one, the next one, this steward, this servant, didn't know his master's will or didn't know it as well, but he still committed unworthy acts. He's only going to get a few lashes in comparison with the many lashes of the unwilling steward. So it's really important now to understand all of this that Jesus is teaching because he's making comparisons and he's using a parable. He's actually using an experience very common to the people of the day about the exactingness, if you will, of the relationship between master and slave. The exactingness of it, the harshness of it, the rawness of it, that reality. He's using that illustration for us to understand things like, simple things like accountability. But we shouldn't be having in our mind that, oh, there's actual corporal punishment in heaven for Christian leaders? I'd love to see that. Yeah. No, that's not what's being taught here. The parable is being used as an illustration of things. And we're not to see this warning as a total picture of motivation for that day. It's just one piece in the whole bigger picture. In fact, don't forget too soon, verses 43 to 44, that's part of this whole setup with the faithful steward and then these three unfaithful ones, 43 to 44, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he'll set him over all of his possessions. You see, in the middle of the first section that we looked at and the middle of the second section that we looked at, it's all about blessing the faithful stewards, blessing the faithful servants, blessing us as we're faithful in our callings in ministry. Jesus loves his church. He loves his church so much that he hates the people who destroy it. He doesn't want people being taught false things or being led away into sensuality or being taken advantage of by, by greedy leaders. He doesn't want that. The idea is very similar to what the Apostle Paul teaches about ministry in 1 Corinthians 13. So this passage, I think, is very helpful, so I would like you to turn there if you have your Bibles. Uh, 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 3, verse 10. So in 1 Corinthians 3.10, it says this. The Apostle Paul is writing, so according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, because he's traveling around starting new churches, right? I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, that is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, whatever it is, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. Okay, so that's a wonderful passage. You can go think about that, study it on your own, but 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through the end of that paragraph 
that really encapsulates a lot of what's being taught here from the apostles' point of view and his teaching when practical ministry terms. So the lesson here, of course, should be obvious is that there's this level of culpability that is tied to the responsibility we're given, the knowledge that we have. Um, the lesson is also that leadership in the church needs to be taken seriously um, by leaders, of course, but also by the rest. And that's definitely a continuing weakness in the North American church is that there is a, a lack of attention, a lack of attention to the importance of teaching and the importance of people who are gifted in leadership doing the leadership. These are things that we as a North American church need to pay attention to more so. Now there's a reason the apostle for all of this and the apostle James puts it this way. He says, let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, because knowing as such, we will receive a stricter judgment. There's more at stake for these types of people, more loss, more gain. So, but there, there's a greater risk or reward for these stewards who are given responsibility. And this whole section ends with the teaching in verse 48b, when it says, everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The they here is an impersonal they. So, so but much faithfulness is required from those who've been given much authority and many gifts from God. And a productivity is expected from people that have been entrusted with responsibility. So I want to talk a little bit and maybe get you to think a little bit about your own specific situation uh, in life. I mean, consider who you are and who God made you to be, what your gifts are, what your passions are, what the skills are that God has given you over the course of your life or at this stage in your life. Who are you? And what is your life situation? Maybe you're in a position where you have little freedom or you have much freedom or you have many responsibilities or fewer. What are your gifts? And be sober in your judgment. We're not to think too highly of ourselves or too lowly of ourselves. And both are problems in the church, problems with us as people because we're weak and we tend to do these things. We tend to go to the extremes rather than stay sober in our judgment. So in Romans 12:3, it says... He's talking about spiritual gifts. And he says, For the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So what are your gifts? And what responsibilities has God laid on you? And are you serving in the right place currently? Sometimes we misplace ourselves. Sometimes other people misplace us and put us in places we shouldn't be serving. Do you need help getting assessed, if you will, on what your gifts are and where you should be serving? And if you're not serving, then you're really not ready, according to Luke 12. So I want to just make it really, really clear what the take-home is. It couldn't be easier. Okay, really, this passage has a lot of interesting things in it. We all know that, okay? We've all heard them. But the bottom line is, as you read this passage, what does it mean to be ready for Jesus? It means to be busy. Now, not with busy work, but busy by being active 
in using what God has given you, your resources and your gifts and your positions and your responsibilities, and to be out there serving the Lord, serving His kingdom, serving with the church, serving with the broader church. That's what it means to be ready. And third, I want to encourage you that you should be able to take joy in your ministry. Take joy in your ministry, your ministry for the gospel, for Jesus Christ, for the benefit of the church, for the benefit of the world. If there's not joy in your ministry, you might not be in the right spot because it shouldn't be that hard to serve with what God's given you. And notice that there are rewards involved and you can look forward to them. In verse 37, Jesus is going to throw you a thanksgiving party at the end of history. He's going to serve you dinner as a way of saying thank you for serving in his church and the purposes of kingdom, for using those gifts that he's given you, using those resources, taking advantage of the body that Jesus has put you in. There's so much to be done. And Jesus is going to be so thankful, right, at this party and the final day. And in verses 43 to 44, if you've been given positions where you're responsible not just for your own ministry, but for others, there's, great, there's even greater reward that's coming your way. And see how the Lord blesses other people. And take a look at that too. Sometimes we, have, we minister with our heads down. But if we look around and we can see that, oh, it doesn't come from us, but it comes from the Holy Spirit working through us, that God uses us to bless other people's lives. That's a wonderful thing. You should be encouraged by that, right? It's a wonderful thing to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and know that he's blessing other people. Well, the master... Jesus Christ, we call him Lord, it really means master, same thing. He's going to be the one that does the evaluation on the final day, right? So you don't have to worry about being evaluated by other people uh, because they tend not to do it very well, and you don't even have to worry about evaluating yourself. It's in the Corinthians letter as well. But Jesus Christ is going to be the one who evaluates. And remember that this, this is the controlling image, right, throughout this whole passage is master-servant, master-servant. We're the servants. All of us are servants in this room. There's only one master, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps one of the greatest pa- benefits of this passage this morning, it might just be realizing that for you, that Jesus is your master. You report to him, right? We're accountable to him. That's who he is, and that's who we are, and we need to know our place. But, you know, I hope we've seen this morning, too, that God has supplied us, really, with a, with a lot of answers to the questions that we opened up with, and what is, how, how do we be ready for the return of Jesus, and what difference is it going to make in your life and in your ministry? Well, hopefully, it pushes us toward more activity, and to be faithful in our daily routines, and to give ourselves to the kingdom work and to pay attention to teaching and leading and, and praying and loving one another well and, and conquering sin in our lives. Again, the answer to being ready and being watchful is to be active. And I'd love to help you figure that out. And that's why we have staff at our church too. They would love to help you figure that out, help you find places where you can serve here. We have plenty of places for you to serve. Again, the benefits of being ready are great. The risks of not being ready are also there. And so it would be very important that we are active and looking for him. Again, in verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. 
Truly I say to you, he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Blessings await for those servants who are ready and watching for Jesus' return. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, as we read this passage, we're struck by so many images, so many lessons of accountability that go beyond what we normally hear and we speak ourselves. We hear so many blessings too that just sort of stand out as not even belonging in the passage that are so striking that you, Lord Jesus, would take such delight in your church that you died, the people you died for, that you're going to be serving in the kingdom a wonderful banquet for all of eternity for us to enjoy. I pray for us this morning that as a people you continue to cause us to be faithful, to be ready, to be awake, to be alert, to be active in ministry, and show us the places where we can even give you more. And we also pray too that in all of this that it would be done with a great joy in the present and a joy in looking toward the rewards that will be ours. And we pray all these things for your sake, Lord Jesus. Amen.